Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you listen in. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and welcome to you today as we continue reading through the scriptures. This year, we're almost done. This is um, day number 356 of our reading through the scriptures this year. My reading today is the book of 1 Peter, so it's 1 Peter chapters 1 through 5. First of all, the author of this book is the Apostle Peter. He was the one that was an eyewitness of Jesus' life, ministry, and sufferings. Now has become a primary leader, along with Paul and John and James, the brother of Jesus, a primary leader of the whole church. And Peter is recognized with such great authority and apostolic um, dignity. He writes to the church, he calls them the pilgrims of the diaspora across Asia Minor, across various parts of Asia and, and the areas where there were churches. It is a circular letter that he wrote for them to all be reading, and that still applies to us today. So the books of the Bible are still for us to read today, and they speak to us today. Peter is writing this with a particular topic or theme in mind, and that is to encourage and strengthen the faith of those that were suffering for Christ. He gives instructions and speaks to how to properly suffer for the Lord, what that means, why do we do it, or why should they stand strong in it, and the end result that will be worth it all when it's all done and said and done. The date of this writing is probably between 62 and 64 AD. It seems to be prior to the severe persecution that came about after the burning of Rome. And he mentions Babylon in this. Now, there's no indication whatsoever from scripture that Peter was ever in the real Babylon, but it is widely understood that in the first century church, Babylon became a code word for Rome. And so we believe that he was writing and speaking of, and perhaps even being in Rome when he wrote this, speaking about this Babylon. Chapter one, he writes it to these elect. And I wanted, I paid attention. I noticed a little bit in Verse 2, about how he brings in the whole triune God, the triunity of God. He speaks about the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. And then he goes on and he begins his, uh, his book. He says, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Beloved, we have a beautiful inheritance awaiting us. Peter understands the resurrection and all that it accomplished for us. And he speaks about how we are now born again, born, begotten, made God's children. 
born to give us a living hope because of Jesus' resurrection and an inheritance. We are now heirs in God's will, in, in the will of our testator. And this inheritance is incorruptible. It will not decay. It continues. It's not going to perish. It's undefiled, unsoiled, free from contamination. It will never fade away. It is a perpetual inheritance for us. And beloved, it is reserved in heaven for us. It is kept there. They are keeping an eye on it. It's attended to there. Hallelujah to all of us who are kept, protected and under the guard and protection of the Lord himself and his mighty forces. Hallelujah. Praise God because it's reserved in heaven for us. In verse 6 through 9, he talks about the testing that refines gold. He's talking about these various trials. In verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he's speaking here about how we don't, we haven't, necessarily physically seen Jesus like Peter had at that time. And he's speaking to maybe a bunch of Christians who never saw Jesus in the flesh. But because they received his message, they love him. And he is encouraging them here that this trying time, these difficulties, these persecutions will prove their genuine faith resulting in praise, honor, and glory. When Jesus comes again, he speaks about the privilege of having this revelation of Jesus, good news, and the grace that's revealed to us. He talks about how this was a mystery that was hidden from the Old Testament people, from their generations, from their prophets. And he speaks about how it was even hidden from angels. Even the angels did not fully understand what's going on. That was one of the reasons that I wrote my novel, Celestial Secret. And you can look it up if you're interested. But it's a novel basically taking the gospel from the angel's perspective. And that intrigued me. And so I wrote a novel about that. But according to Peter, the angels didn't even really understand why. Um, you know, imagine that. Why did Jesus leave heaven to come to us? Why did he become a baby in a manger? poor when he deserved the most regal welcome the earth could have ever provided anyone. Why did he suffer? You know, uh, think about all of those things. Those were mysteries. They were never really revealed in full to the prophets or to those that wrote and, and taught in the Old Testament, but they didn't really understand. Even the angels didn't really understand it either. I want to read verse 13. Peter says, 
because we have this privilege of understanding the full picture. You know, the rest of them, they had the puzzle, they had the puzzle pieces in the box. And if you heard the Hebrew study that I did, you could, you can understand my analogy here. They had the puzzle pieces in the box, but they didn't have the picture on the box. They didn't know how it all fit together. And we have that privilege of knowing that. We have the whole of the picture, all of the book. It's one book with one author and one central figure, and that's Jesus Christ. So he says, therefore, in other words, in light of the privilege that we have, he says, now, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct or in all your lifestyle. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Let's talk about that in light of what God has done to us, the great revelation, even in light of the fiery trials and the refining work that brings glory to his name through the genuineness of our faith. He says this, gird up your mind. I want to speak about this for just a moment. I studied this a little bit, and in one resource, in the Thayer's resource, he talked about how in order to be, there was a practice, in order to be unimpeded in movement, when they would start a journey or engage in any work, they would bind their long flowing garments and tuck them around them, bring them closer to their body, and tuck them in with a belt. That way they weren't, they weren't possibly going to trip them up or make them slow down or stumble. So it was very important, and this was an understood image in that day. So Peter says, gird up the loins. In other words, bind those things that could trip you up. You know, bind your, bind your wild thoughts and those things that could lead you astray those things that could capture your mind, those things that could uh, make you think ways you shouldn't be thinking. He says, you know, gird all of your mind up, gird it all up and think on the right kinds of things. Don't let it slow you down. And then he says, be sober. Don't be drunk. Don't be unaware of what's going on. Be awake and alert and sober. And then to rest your hope fully on the grace that is coming later. Hallelujah. In other words, he says, don't be worried about what might happen or what you might have to face, but know that Jesus will be there with you and will give you the all-sufficient grace that you need. I have a friend that used to say it this way. She talked about how you get the ticket when you got to board the train. And so if we have to board any trains, the Lord will be right there to give us the ticket that we need, the all-sufficient grace He will supply. We don't need to be worried about it. We need to rest our hope fully on the grace that He will give to us if we need to, if, when, if and when we need it. He speaks about being obedient children called by a holy God to be holy. 
Now, you know, we can look at this two ways. And, and for years, most of my life, I saw it as more of a command. But now I don't see it that way. Now I see it as an invitation. Yes, it's a command in the sense that it's required. But I see it also as an invitation. The Holy God is inviting you and me to have fellowship with him. And he will never become unholy to come down to our level. So therefore, he is inviting us to become holy, to be holy so that we can have in good conscience and in a clean conscience fellowship with him with nothing hindering that. That's what he's talking about there, I believe. He talks in verse 17 through 20 about the price that was paid to free us from slavery through redemption. Hallelujah. I want to read verse 18 through uh, 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, those can get tarnished. He says, you weren't, you weren't redeemed. You weren't bought back. You weren't bought out of the slave market of sin with things that can get tarnished from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. You weren't bought out of those things. You weren't bought out of this life that, that meant nothing, that you were just aimless. You didn't even know what you were doing, where you were going. You were stumbling all the time. Even though you might have been trying to follow the traditions of Christianity, he says you were in your aimless conduct. He said you weren't redeemed with corruptible things that can be tarnished, but rather, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's what has bought us and brought us, redeemed us from the slave market of sin. It's the precious blood of Jesus. And notice in that passage, if you go on, he talks about how he was slain before the world was ever formed. Friend, the cross was never, ever, ever an afterthought. It was plan A all along. There was no plan B. You know, God didn't make the world all nice and beautiful, wonderful fellowship with him and all this kind of stuff. And then, oops, all of a sudden, Adam says, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do now? And God's in heaven wringing his hands, trying to wonder about plan B. No, he knew before he ever made Adam what exactly was going to happen. And he already had plan A established from the very beginning. And we see it play out all through the Old Testament and all through the New Testament, and come to its completion in the New Testament, in Jesus Christ. The cross was never an afterthought. It was always plan A all along, even before God ever made man. Now, if, if you've never understood the love of Jesus, maybe thinking about it from that perspective will help you understand the love that God had for you and for me. Because he knew what we were going to do, and he made us anyway. He knew what it was going to cost him to buy us back and to set us free and to make us redeemed and able to fellowship with him in the way that he always wanted 
when he created man in the first place. And he still did it, knowing the cost and the price it was going to require. That is the love of God. That is God's love for you and for me. Praise God. He goes on and he talks about the, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit being to purify us. Hallelujah. And so then he goes and he talks about us uh, having fervent and sincere love one for another. He goes on in verse 25 and he talks about the word of God enduring forever. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. That's talking about the rhema word, the, the word used in verse um, 23 is the logos. And as we've talked about in many of these Bible bites, the logos is the entirety of the revelation of God given to us in the form of the Bible. But the rhema word is when the Holy Spirit makes something from that come alive to you and you now see it and it becomes real to you. And it speaks to you in that moment. And so that's what he's talking about here. That's the gospel message. It's when the word of God is preached. And, and then the Holy Spirit says, that's for you. You need to answer that. You need to know that. You need to respond. And, you know, he will call us to, he will convict us when we're sinners. And he will call us and draw us to himself to come and, and repent of our sin and be saved. Hallelujah. So that's what he's talking about there. And it is good news. It is good, good, good news. Praise God. He goes on and he gives throughout the rest of his book here, he gives a lot of practical, practical chapters um, in verse, uh, practical instructions, I mean, in the rest of these chapters. He talks about in verse, uh, in chapter two, verses one through three. He kind of continues on because he had started talking about being born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible in chapter one. So he's talking about what Jesus preached about being born again. He told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And I have another lesson in another series, Thy Kingdom Come. Uh, one of the lessons there goes deep into the concept of being born again. Why Nicodemus was chided for not understanding it because it's coming from the Old Testament. All of that is, is explained in more detail and what that all means. But it's in essence, having faith in Jesus Christ, you are born as a brand new creation, Paul told us in Corinthians. So he's talking about that here. And he says, you know, basically as being born again, now you're a baby. You're a baby in Christ. You are a baby in Christ. You're just born. So what do you need? What does a baby need when it's just born? It's got to have milk. You cannot feed a newborn baby solid food, but it thrives on milk. And as you feed the baby the milk, the baby grows and develops. And so Peter continues with that very understanding. And he says, desire the sincere milk of the word. So what's the very first thing that a baby Christian needs? Get into the Word of God. Read the Bible. Read it. If you do that and you are a brand new Christian in Christ, it will become alive to you like it's never become alive to you before. You may have read it all your life. 
and it's never really spoken to you, but it'll start speaking to you because Jesus is the living word and he's all through this book and you'll begin to to understand it and it'll begin to give you direction in your life. It'll begin to assure you of your salvation. There's great things that this book will do. So he says, his instruction is, desire the milk of this word. Read it. That's the only food that you can handle at first. But as you read it, you'll begin to grow and you'll get to the point where you can enjoy the more solid things, the deeper things of God in later days to come. But you start with reading the word of God. And I encourage you to do it every single day. Read the scriptures. Be hungry for the word of God. Praise God. He goes in the next few verses and he talks about explaining to us how we are living stones being built into a tabernacle of God, a place, a spiritual house, he calls it, to offer sacrifices to him. And because we are those that now offer sacrifices to him, if, if you go on and you read that, you'll see that we are now a new priesthood. There's a priesthood of the believers, has nothing to do with the tribe of Levi, has nothing to do with any of the tribes of, of Israel in the sense that it's any, you know, descendant of a certain particular tribe. This priesthood of the believers is, is applicable and is true of all believers, Gentile and Jewish Christians, all Christians. We are now priests serving under one great high priest, and he is high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We talked a lot about that during the Hebrew study and in other places. So he has made us now a kingdom of priests to our God. You see that in Revelation chapter 5. And, um, and also I wanted to read to you verses 9 and 10 here of Peter's writings. And Peter says... Clearly, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. In other words, a priesthood of kings. You are king priests, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. So he's reminding us there of Hosea chapter 1 verse 10. So he's telling us here about how God has made us a brand new priesthood, serving under our great high priest. Praise God. Then he goes on with further instructions for living in, in all kinds of areas of life, including obedience to government, uh, care and love for all people, work relationships, handling suffering the right way, etc. He talks in verse 23 through 25 of chapter 2 about how we need to entrust ourselves and our situations to the God who is worthy to be trusted and let him handle vengeance. So he he's talking about how Jesus committed himself and we also must commit ourselves to the faithful creator. Chapter 3 begins to talk about husbands and wives a little bit here. And it's interesting because in this particular section, he is revealing how, let's say a wife had a husband who was not saved or 
was a prodigal, one who was kind of in rebellion and run away from the Lord, or could be someone who is saved but is disobedient in a particular area. A lot of times when we read this, we think it's only talking about those who have lost husbands. That's not necessarily true. It just says he's disobedient to the word. Doesn't necessarily limit it just to those who are unsaved, but it could be saved people that just are in some form of disobedience. Now, it says clearly here that the wife's not to go preaching at her husband, but rather that she will live a godly life, blessing him, loving him, taking care of him, and through that kind of behavior, that alone will minister to him and will be attractive and God can woo him. It will attract him to the Lord and the Lord can use that to woo him. So he's talking here even about the beauty of the inner person being much more important than gold and silver jewelry and, and fine dress and all those things. He goes on and he talks to the husbands about living with the wives in, in understanding. In other words, knowing your spouse, understanding them, giving them honor, even if there's a dis difference physically, because typically speaking, a man is generally stronger physically than a woman is. However, that's, they're still brothers and sisters in the Lord. There's no distinction as far as everybody being equal in terms of being a child of the Most High God. They're both born again, um, etc., you know, he's talking about that, seeing her as a brother or, you know, as a, as a sister in the Lord, if it's the husband looking at the wife or whatever, seeing each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord, because everything, uh, everyone is the same and equal at the foot of the cross. Notice that Peter tells the husbands here, if you don't do this, <clears throat> your prayers will be hindered. It's like they're cut off. It's like they're chopped off. And they're not going anywhere. And they're not going to be answered because you have messed up. Now, that's what he's saying here. That's the word of the Lord. That's not me saying that. That's Peter's words here in the scriptures. So we need to understand how important how we treat one another is and how it affects even our prayer life. In verse 15, Peter's very clear here of chapter 3. He tells us to sanctify the Lord God always in our hearts and then to be ready to defend, to stand up for the truth, to stand strong and to not cave or give in. Notice here, it's always been about the heart with God and it still is always. It's never changed. Jesus is our example. And then he goes on, he talks about that, about Jesus being our example here. Then we go on into chapter 4, and he starts out in verse 1 and 5. Uh, it's interesting because he says here, for us to have the same mind that was in Christ, in other words, that we're not going to waste any more of our time. You know, friend, we can't go back and change anything in the past. Maybe, maybe there's regrets. Yes, we will all have regrets. I believe that. 
And I believe that's one of the things that it says when, when it says in Revelation that he will wipe away all of our tears. I believe some of those tears will be regrets that we have over wasted time and wasted opportunity, wasted talents, wasted treasures, wasted time that we can never get back. But we do not have to mope around and wallow in depression or in any of that. That's not what God wants us to do. Read these verses here in First uh, in First Peter chapter 4. Because he's saying here, don't worry about the past. You can't go back. He says, leave all the past in the past. Don't walk like that anymore. Don't walk the way you used to walk in sin and in rebellion and in wastefulness. Now, arm yourself and let's get moving. Let's live the rest of our time here for the will of God and see to it that the rest of our time, the rest of our talents, and the rest of our treasures will be useful for Him, will be productive for God, and we will be about His will and about the Father's business, not our own selfish desires. Praise God. He talks later about the end of all things. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. Now, he wrote this 2,000 years ago. If it was true then, and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit as one of the parts of the scriptures themselves, it's more than that true today. I mean, it's still true today is what I'm saying. It's just as true, and we are even closer. That's the point. We're even closer to the end of all things So he says, therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. It's interesting that, in other words, he is saying here that he's giving us an important understanding that prayer is going to be very important in the end times as we draw nearer to the return of the Lord and the end of all things. It seems like Peter is saying that intentional, right-minded, and sober prayers are going to be absolutely necessary at the end of all things, as well as fervent love, intentional, passionate, and earnest love for other believers. We need to take these things to heart. Praise God. He goes on and he talks about the gifts of God that you've been given. Use them. Use them. If they're speaking gifts, you speak in such a way and be humble enough that that it was as if God is using you and speaking directly through you, as if it's his words himself. And I know, beloved, for me, friend, this is how I always pray. And I ask the Lord to do that, that he would speak through me. And I know many others that have speaking gifts are doing the same thing. So whatever kind of speaking gift, whether it's through a pastor, a preacher, evangelist, foreign missionary, teacher in a, in a class, or whatever the speaking gift is, speak as if submitted to God and asking God for Him to speak through you as if it's His own very words and His own very heart coming through you. And then he says, if you're a minister, you know, if you do any other form of ministry service for the Lord of, for the Lord in his kingdom, then do it. Do it as unto the Lord. Do it. Serve him. Serve him and let God get the glory 
for every one of these things. Hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. In verse 19, he again encourages us to commit ourselves to the faithful creator God and not to take any vengeance of our own. In chapter 5, in the first several verses, he is exhorting elders, those who lead congregations, those who lead and have influence maybe over a class or a part of the body of Christ in any way. And he says this, I want to read in verse 2 uh, through 4. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, meaning Jesus, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. He's saying, this is God's flock. You got to remember it's his church. These are his people. They're his sheep. And you need to serve them. You need to have a humble spirit. You need to be an example over them and don't force them and don't be lords over them. Shepherd them, feed them, care for them like a shepherd did, like your shepherd, the chief shepherd did, and be their examples, not lords over them. And I believe that that's true of all of us. And then there's a promise that if we will faithfully do that with those that God gives us under our tutelage, then he will reward us in coming days. Praise be to God. He goes on down. He continues to talk about submission and humility being necessary. He says in verse 8 through 11, he talks about and leaves us with instructions about how to win victory over the enemy. We must realize that we do have an enemy. And as we, clo as we begin to close, I want to just read you this. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I want to stop right there for just a moment. Notice that, that he's roaming around looking for easy prey. He's looking for somebody that is easy prey for him to pick off and for him to get and snatch. Now, if, if a shepherd has a flock of sheep and the sheep are close to him, that lion is not going to come anywhere near that wise, good shepherd. He's not going to come near him. He's not going to try to pick off those sheep because he knows he'll, he'll incur the wrath of the shepherd and he will end up on the losing side of that battle. But if there's sheep that's kind of out on the fringes, not close, not paying attention, they're not close to the shepherd, they've kind of forgotten about the shepherd, and they're just out there snoozing and, and wandering around and, and exploring, and the shepherd's way over here, guess what? Those are easy prey. And the devil, the roaring lion, is going to try to pick those off because they've not paid attention and been serious about staying close to the shepherd. 
Don't be an easy prey for the lion to pick off. Don't be that. Realize that he's looking for those he can devour. Don't be one. Don't be one of those. He goes on and he says, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you to him, be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter's leaving them again with another encouragement that if you've got to suffer, hold on, hold on, stick it out. Stick it out. God will bring you through and it'll be good in the end. What you, what the end result is, it will be good. Hallelujah. Praise God. I pray this has been a blessing to you and Lord willing, you can join us again for future episodes of Bible Bites. God bless you today.